This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 445 of IAQ Radio. It's Friday, January 27th, 2016, and this week we welcome Sarah Kwan from the Petya Environmental Biotechnology Lab at Yale University. Looking forward to a great discussion on the microbiology of the built environment. Before we do, let's stop, start by thanking our marquee sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Okay, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. First, we want to send out congratulations to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for the first correct answer to last week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, January 27, 2017, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. What is the term which defines the accumulation of microorganisms, plants, algae, or animals on wetted surfaces? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Sarah Kwan. She is a Ph.D. candidate and NSF graduate research fellow in the Petya Environmental Biotechnology Laboratory at Yale University. She also received her master's and Ph.M. in environmental engineering from Yale, For her dissertation, she has been investigating the correlation of indoor air pollution in homes and schools of the Cherokee Nation with asthma prevalence, allergy rates, and school absenteeism. As part of this research, she's been conducting research on the impact of ventilation and cleaning intervention on the indoor microbiology of the built environment. Welcome, Sarah. Do we have you on the line? You do. Great. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. It's great to great to get a chance to talk again. We met briefly and uh, talked a little bit at the microbiology of the built environment conference out in uh, Colorado, and uh, that was a, an interesting conference. And since then, I've been trying to get together with you again. I'm glad we did. Um, with with respect to the microbiome, let's talk a little bit about that. What 
with a newborn child, I know you've got a, a two-and-a-half-month-old at home there. What What's their first exposure to the microbiome? Well, um, it's commonly believed that the first real microbiome, microbiome exposure happens um, through the birth canal or through uh, what's called belly button oligarchs if a C-section is performed. Hmm. So that's generally the consensus. That's when they'll first really be exposed to microbiome through birth. And through, through the birth, then they, they, um, they're exposed, and then that kind of sets the baseline, I guess? Yeah. That will, it's a pretty important exposure that happens to especially the birth canal because the exposure that happens in the first three months of a child's life really helps build up their immune system and their own microbiome. Cliff, you have a follow-up? I, I do. I do, Sarah. I, I guess what my question is, if the first exposure is you know, going through the birth canal, does that mean that amniotic fluid is sterile? But that is a really interesting question, and um, the answer is that we are not sure. <laughs> um, okay. There has been research that has come out that is showing that there is evidence of bacteria in the placenta, blood of the umbilical cord, and membranes around the fetus. Um, a lot of this work is coming out of like Washington University School of Medicine and Vanderbilt University, so that would indicate that no, the amniotic fluid is not sterile. But this is kind of a, a new emerging area of research, so we're kind of at the point where we're not sure, but it, it's looking like, no, the amniotic fluid is not sterile, so they will have some exposure before birth. Some of the researchers are also finding that there's microbes in the brain and, and urine isn't sterile as once thought as well, which is pretty interesting, I think. Interesting. It is. Thank you. What about, let's talk a little bit about what, what some of these um, microbes are and, and what their function is, the, you know, when, when the child is first starting to develop this microbiome, what, what, what are the key identities and functions of those microbes? So I do just want to preface it this with this isn't my area of expertise, but I can definitely give some insight on this. So when, especially when the child is birthed through natural birth, they will be exposed to pro let me make sure it's right, propionic bacterium, which is a skin-related bacteria, often related to acne development in teenagers, and then also the gut microbiomes. And the gut microbiomes are predominantly fermenters. If you think of the gut as an anaerobic digester, these bacteria will be breaking down foods into fatty acids through fermentation. So these are some of the main things they'll be coming in contact with. Of course, babies born via C-section will have a microbiome that's more closely related to the mother's skin. There's been research that shows that babies born through C-section will mimic, their microbiome will mimic the mother's skin pretty instantly after birth. So you'll have two different microbiomes depending on, on how you come into this world. And then what about the, the, the indoor microbiome when they're, they're born? I guess the first exposure would be in a hospital. Um, has there been any look at maybe, you know, what, what type of indoor microbiome there is in the hospital versus when they get back home? I mean, there, there definitely have been studies. I don't know them to any great detail to, be able to give you much of a response to that, but they will definitely, their first exposures will happen in the hospital in the car ride home from the car seat, depending on if it's new or if it's used. 
and then when they get home. So there's like a whole array of different microbiomes there. You're very quickly exposed to life. And I'm sure the microbiome of the hostel is very different from that of the home environment. But again, I haven't looked into this personally, so I can't expand too much on that answer. But I am aware that both of these are very important pathways to their exposure. Do you have any just general thoughts on, you know, what, how people that have a new newborn and, and what they can do to help positively influence the, the, the microbiome in their home? I think one of the most positive things you can do for the microbiome in your home would be to check that you don't have an abundance of moisture in your home and you don't have any mold or anything present because that can really have a detrimental effect. So I think probably one of the most important things you can do before taking a child into home is check for for water damage and mold in the house because you really don't want to expose a child, especially at such a fragile age, to that kind of microbiome. There, are, there is other research that, that shows some beneficial things you can expose a child to, especially if you can expose them to it when they're even still in the womb, such as owning a dog can help bring a greater diversity into the home, which can have a very protective effect for them later developing ad- allergies or asthma. So there's definitely been links to the ownership of pets and the positive effects that can have. And let's let's talk. I know another thing you looked at a little bit is biofilm. Can you can you describe for listeners what what the biofilm is? Biofilm. Yes. So for my master's research here, I was looking predominantly at biofilms, especially with respect to uh, water treatment membranes. So a biofilm is basically just a layer of microorganisms that have stuck together and adhered to a surface, and with respect to the biofilms I was looking at, these were microorganisms encased in extra extra polymeric substances known as EPS, and they stick together on surfaces, especially surfaces submerged in water, and they can cause quite a lot of uh, damage to things like water treatment membranes or heating systems and other things where you're trying to flush water through. So it's a water treatment membrane. That's like a filter? So the water treatment membranes I predominantly looked at were forward osmosis and reverse osmosis, which is, I guess you could think of it as a filter where you're pushing or pulling the water through to clean out salts or other contaminants from the water. I see. Cliff, let me so turn it over. The biofilm can, can clog it and slow this down and cause that, and it's very hard to clean biofilms off of water treatment membranes. So they cause a lot of economic damage with respect to trying to maintain systems. Hmm. Cliff? Uh, I I guess uh, I've got a follow-up question and then maybe go off in a different direction. I've heard of reverse osmosis. I never heard of forward osmosis. Uh, What is that? They're two very similar things, and they use very similar membranes. So... Reverse osmosis is the more commonly known one, and that is where you use hydraulic pressure to effectively pull water through a membrane. Or so forward osmosis works in a similar with a similar kind of membrane, but you will have a high saline solution on one side, and then you will have the water you're trying to treat on the other side, which will be a lower saline, and the osmotic pressure will actually pull the water through. So essentially, you end up with a with a clean salty solution 
after putting it through forward osmosis, you can take, say, river water and you can pour the water through the membrane into the saline side and it will be clean saline solution, which you can then go on and pass through a reverse osmosis process, which will push the water out through the membrane through hydraulic pressure and you'll get clean water the other side. And the benefit is you won't get any or you'll get much less biofouling on the reverse osmosis membranes because it has been shown through research that forward osmosis membranes are actually clean, uh, easier to clean the biofilms off of, or more importantly, biofilms have less of an effect on a forward osmosis membrane than they do on a reverse osmosis membrane. So it's like a, it can be used as a pre-treatment step to reverse osmosis. You know, in, in terms of the biofilm, about a month, month ago, I was at my dentist for the second half of a dental procedure, and they're working in my mouth, and all of a sudden, uh, the doctor stops, and they begin to fill up the chair that I'm sitting in with water. And, you know, uh, I, I never realized that actually dental chairs store water, and the water that they actually spray in your mouth in many situations is actually stored in the chair, and they have, you know, special chemicals for you know, keeping it fresh and maintaining it and, you know, all sorts of regimens. And, you know, biofilm is a uh, big concern there. Hmm. Right. No, I never knew that. That's interesting. All right, well, let's let's move over to some other research that you've been doing. And, and I you can maybe clarify for us what's done and what isn't. One is the impact of ventilation and cleaning intervention on the indoor microbiology of the built environment. Um, and then the other, I, I don't know if these are kind of combined or not, the indoor microbiology of the built environment to reduce adverse asthma episodes for children of the Cherokee Nation, the impact of ventilation and cleaning. Can you describe those for our listeners? Yeah, so these are essentially the same project. The, the first title, the impact of ventilation and cleaning intervention on the indoor microbiology of the built environment was a title I used for my um, area exam, so my prospectus, which is where I presented the work I wanted to do for my PhD. The second title is the more refined title I'm using for my dissertation. So it's the same work that I'm doing, just stated in two different ways here. So what we're doing here is we are going into the homes and the schools of a group of Cherokee Nation families that have children that suffer from asthma and or bad allergies and we're sampling their homes and the schools that the children attend so that we can see if there are any correlations between ventilation cleaning and their indoor microbiome with the hope of then linking it to any adverse asthma episodes they are experiencing. So we're taking multiple samples from multiple homes and schools for this project. We actually have about 52 um, homes that we're going into, and they are linked with 14 different schools. We're cutting everything from swabs from high touch point surfaces, where we're looking at the DNA and the ATP from these swabs. We're looking at PM10, both the indoor and outdoor environments of the homes, taking elevated dust samples, elevated because it's more undisturbed dust, um, we've taken lots of different data from the homes and schools, such as temperature, humidity, air exchange rate, and then we're collecting a lot of data on the types of cleaning that they do, the frequency of the cleaning they do, and 
collecting other observations on the building, as well as interviewing the family on um, the child's health. Have they had any adverse asthma episodes in the sampling campaigns we're doing? And we're also collecting absenteeism data from the schools they attend so that we can put this all together and start making a story and a picture of how ventilation and cleaning can affect the child's health. So you're not, are you um, uh, changing the cleaning and ventilation in the homes or just measuring what's existing? We are looking at what is existing. There are a lot of government prohibitations for going in and actually intervening with what you can do in a home. So we are recording what they are doing and then that will give us the ability to then go and compare the different cleaning procedures, different ventilation rates between the homes so we can start making links. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to go in and and, and the cleaning for them to really have a look at. You have to look at what they do and compare from the different families' routines about how that affects. It's the second annual Indoor Environmental Science Forum coming to the Doubletree Hotel, Tampa Airport in sunny Tampa, Florida, February 21st through the 24th. Join industry leaders and educators as they share their knowledge and supporting science with you. See the latest equipment and solutions from exhibitors. Network with sponsors and industry insiders. It's two full days of in-depth coverage of water damage assessment, protocols, mold remediation, solutions, and legal issues. Don't miss this important two-day industry forum, beginning this February 21st with a welcome reception and wrapping up with a live IAQ radio broadcast Friday the 24th, featuring Radio Joe and the Z-Man and their guest John Lapiterre, Richard Alexis, and industry watchdog Pete Consigli. Register now at IndoorEnvironmentalScienceForum.com or call 954-562-6093 for more information. Okay, this is Radio Joe Hughes. We're back with uh, Sarah Kwan. Sarah, do we have you on the line now? You do. Hi. Ah, uh, that sounds better so far. Cliff, uh, we were talking Great. a little bit about uh, your, your your project, Indoor Microbiology of the Built Environment to Reduce Adverse Asthma Episodes for Children of the Cherokee Nation, the Impact of Ventilation and Cleaning. And Cliff, I know you had a follow-up question. I, I did. I just wondered where those uh, you know, is this all on a single reservation or multiple reservations? Is it in a single state or multiple state? I was just geographical interest. So we're doing our research with the Cherokee Nation, which is in northeast Oklahoma. Um, an interesting thing about the Cherokee Nation is they don't actually live on a reservation. They live all across northeast Oklahoma and they have homes which are designated as Cherokee Nation homes because of the people that live within them. So they're one of the tribes that don't actually have a reservation as such. Instead, they have homes that are dotted throughout northeast Oklahoma. Okay. And that, um, I'm trying to think, northeast Oklahoma, I guess that would be a, is that a mixed humid climate or a hot humid climate? So it's a mixture, and we actually have, three sampling campaigns that we have done there. The first one just being the baseline sampling campaign. Then we went and did a winter heating campaign and a summer cooling campaign. The, um, the weather there, summers are generally like sunny and warm. Winters are bright and cold. And 
they, they basically have all four seasons, so it makes it a great way to compare the different ventilation that will happen in the summer when you have air conditioning versus the winter where you'll close up your house and have winter heating. And if you could tell us a little more about the construction. Are these ranch, two-story, um, you know, a mix of different types? Do they have basements? We visited everything from mobile home in the middle of a tall grassy field to beautiful new construction two-story homes. So there really is a very wide variation of the homes that we visited, which means there is also very different ventilation rates within the homes. Some of the homes I personally visited while there, I had everything from a mobile home that the door and the windows really didn't close that well, so there was natural ventilation year out to homes that in the summer and winter they never opened windows and they had forced ventilation throughout the house the entire year round. So hmm. it gives us a really good perspective on the different ventilation rates you can see within homes. And are there? did they have basements or was it slab on grade more? I don't recall seeing any basements and I'm not sure if basements are common in that area. I don't so think. So I know the ones I visited, visited had no basements. Okay. I can't speak for all the homes. I'd have to look at the data when I'm going through it, but I don't think there were basements there. And let's go back to the sampling you did. You were you were describing a little bit of the sampling, and um, it sounded like a lot of it was dust samples and, and doing some uh, PCR on it. Um, did you also do some, some more uh, standard type of analysis, like uh, spore trap air sampling or culturable sampling or um, anything like that? So you're right, we predominantly have focused on the dust sampling because the dust will travel through the air and then settle, so it's a really good way to get a sample of the indoor air within the home. We have collected swabs that we are extracting the DNA from, which will be quantified on PCR and then sequenced to get the IDs. We also, at the same time, sampled with an ATP sampler, where ATP is used as a, a stand-in for microbial life on surfaces so that we can do comparisons between the DNA sampling and ATP sampling to see if ATP is a robust method for sampling the microbial cleanliness of a surface. So... DNA sampling can be quite intricate with extraction and sequencing, but ATP sampling is a very cost-effective, easy-to-use sampling method where you will swab the surface, put the swab into the ATP reader, and you'll get a relative lights unit's number from that so you can instantly see how clean a surface is with regards to ATP. So this is a sampling mechanism you can put in the hands of a school janitor, for instance, where they can go and sample surfaces that have been cleaned. So this is a really good way where we're testing the robustness of ATP cleaning throughout our research at the same time as doing the research for ventilating and cleaning. Can, can you make any general um, conclusions on, on how the ATP testing works uh, compared to, say, the, the PCR? Yes, yeah, so I did a, a pre-sampling campaign in... 10 schools local to Connecticut where we did um, some really robust testing between the DNA and ATP. I went in very skeptical that ATP would actually be a good way to test surface cleanliness, but the results are showing that they do coincide when the peaks, the concentrations are high and when they're low. So ATP is actually 
proving to be a good way of testing microbial cleanliness, which is a really nice thing to find out because it's such a cost-effective way to test. So it's all all indications are pointing to this this really easy to use method is is a great thing to have to now, put in the hands of schools and stuff to check their cleanliness. Uh, did you find the same good results with respect to both bacteria and fungi, or was it a um, little? You know, I've had people tell me that it's not as good on fungi as it is on bacteria. I'm wondering what your thoughts were. So you can't differentiate where the ATP comes from. So with that respect, I couldn't tell you if the ATP is a bacterial, ATP a fungal ATP. So what we have compared is when I extracted the DNA, I quantified it on PCR for total bacteria, total fungi, and human cells with the thought that these would be the three most predominant sources of of cells within the ATP samples. And then we added these three together, although you can't perfectly add these three together because they're slightly different things. We have added the three together and then compared those total cell counts with the ATP numbers. And in that respect, they are correlating really well. On the surfaces I've tested, we have found that bacteria is the dominant source of of ATP on surfaces from the looks of it. So bacteria far washed over any fungi or anything else that we found on the surface. And but in those comparisons, they're comparing very well to each other. With respect to, you know, you, you get a clean surface um, after cleaning. How quickly, if you can say, how quickly do we get back to the point where you're basically back where you started again with respect to the amount of bacteria and fungi and, and other things on that surface? So I only have the results for my school study back so far. So I can't say for, for homes, although it may be similar. But with the schools I went and sampled, we looked at school desks. And as far as concentration goes, the microbiome was back to its regular concentration after just three days after cleaning, which was very interesting to find out. And that's concentration. Especially because the schools only clean their desk once per semester. So after three days, the cleaning kind of was null and void as far as concentration was concerned. And as far as the, um, let's see, there's concentration and then there's the, the makeup of that concentration. You, you really can't, are we able to tell on that? So that's part of the study is still a work in progress. We have uh, just got the sequencing data back. So we're starting to compare um, what the microbial diversity looks like before and after cleaning, how quickly the diversity returns to its original microbial makeup. Um, initial results are showing that basically the desks before after cleaning are just awash with the skin bacteria from the children that are taking over the desk. So it looks like there isn't too much change in the microbial makeup. So hopefully when we start correlating the, the quantitative results with the sequencing, we'll be able to see if there's much of a shift. We're still going through this analysis, but it looks like there won't be too much of a change in the in the types of bacteria on the desk. And was the cleaning Basically, all... children are just washing the surfaces in their skin, microbes, gut microbes, mouth microbes. Children are dirty is probably what we're <laughs> going to find out. Um, 
was the cleaning all done the same way or were there you know different products used different types of cleaning maybe someone used a, a rag and someone else used a microfiber cloth and someone else maybe used a sponge or, or whatever um, were you able to look at different types of cleaning and their effects so the samples were taken from three different schools and each school used the same cleaning method as far as they used a clean paper towel and a cleaning spray to clean the desk. And they sprayed down the desk and wiped it off with a paper towel. But each school used a different cleaning spray. Not by design, that's just how they clean their desk. One school used an all-purpose spray, one school used Windex, and one school used an antibacterial display. So it's going to be very interesting to see as the results start coming together through the analysis, whether that's had much of a, an impact on what is found on the desk. But initial results are pretty much showing that what is found on the desk is the same throughout the schools. But it, when I get more in-depth, it's going to be interesting to see if that has much of a factor on what is there and how quickly it comes back. D did you look at other surfaces like uh, carpeting versus hard surfaces um, and then look at maybe how different types of vacuums worked? We In the schools, we looked at door handles and hard floors. We had initially hoped to look at carpeting as well, but in this particular school district, they really didn't have any carpet. The only carpet I think that we found in the schools was in the nurse's office, which would be a whole different kind of microbiome anyway. So we weren't able to do a hard floor versus carpet analysis in this study. That will be something that we can start looking at a little bit more when we get further with our results from the homes and schools in the Cherokee Nation, because, of course, some homes have hard floors and some homes have carpet, and that's all been noted in with the samples that were taken. So we'll be able to do more of a comparison for the floor types when we get more in-depth in our results for the homes and schools and study. Okay. What we've got to do is I've got to stop and make a short but sad announcement, and then we're going to thank our sponsors again here, and we'll be back with the second half of our interview with Sarah Kwan from the Petya Environmental Biotechnology Lab at Yale University. Uh, before we do, I unfortunately have to announce that uh, it's great sadness uh, that I inform listeners about the passing of Donald Brian Baker, frequent listener, friend, and guest on IAQ Radio. Brian passed away not long after joining IAQ Radio for one final show that focused on his passion for HVAC and indoor air quality. I also wanted to share a thought from his son because I think it's pretty profound. To all those that knew my father and all those that my father helped, remember one thing. The best way to remember Brian Baker would be to never forget that we are all in this together. Everything he did in life revolved around that. He believed that every action taken and every word spoken has an effect. Whether it be in the way we carry ourselves in day-to-day -day life or the way we approach our teaching methods or the way we look at codes and regulations, everything we do must be done with thought and care because the actions we take will ultimately affect everyone. In that, we are all responsible for one another.
IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. All right, we're back for the second half of our interview. We've got Sarah Elizabeth Kwan from uh, the Petya Environmental Microbiotechnology Lab at Yale. And, and Sarah, I'm curious, you know, we were talking a little bit about your um, your work you're doing on the, on the microbiome of the built environment. And I'm, I'm wondering, what, what got you interested in this particular subject and looking at the Cherokee Nation and, and ventilation and cleaning and how that affects the, the microbiology? Well, there were two things that got me interested in working on this. The first was that I come from a family that have done a lot of work in developing countries as missionaries and as as people going out as healthcare workers. So I always wanted to do something to kind of give back. And also I come from a family that's had a lot of problems with asthma. My paternal grandmother died from asthma when my father was young and Two of my three brothers suffered from asthma as children, and interestingly, they suffered from asthma when we lived adjacent to a brickyard in England, and when we moved to a more rural community with cleaner air, the asthma went away. So this really got me interested in, in why that happened and what other things could help to reduce asthma episodes. So both of these interests kind of collided and brought me to the research lab of Jordan Petchia, where I took on this project. Hmm. And then how did you get down into the Oklahoma area? That was through a collaboration between the Petri Lab and the Tulsa Indoor Air Program with Richard and Ula Shaughnessy. They had put together a proposal looking at this with the Cherokee Nation. Um, they're a great group of people to study because it has been shown that Native Americans actually have twice the asthma prevalence of non-Native Americans in America. So it's not only easier to find families that have children with asthma, but they also have more of a need to find solutions to help alleviate the asthma in their children, which kind of drew us towards the Cherokee Nation for using them as our study participants. Interesting. And then I'm I'm curious with with respect to the ventilation part of this. I'm you know how are you measuring the effectiveness of the ventilation in these homes? So when we go into the homes, we take air exchange rate readings so that we can compare the ventilation rates in the homes, both at 
different times of year within the same home and then house to house at the same time of year between the different houses. We can then look at the makeup of the indoor microbiome from that ventilation rate and see if there are any correlations between other homes with the same ventilation rate or changes we see in that microbiome when the ventilation rate changes with the change in seasons. And are all these homes, um, I'm wondering, do they have just you know natural ventilation, windows and doors? Do some of them maybe have uh, energy recovery ventilation? Um, I'm, I'm assuming many of them have at least bathroom fans, so they have um, some ventilation there. Can you describe a little more for listeners what you're finding there? Well, I've seen homes that are ventilated literally purely through open windows, doors, cracks in the walls, to homes that are so sealed up that the only ventilation that they get is through filtered ventilation within the homes. So that will also be an interesting thing to look at, the natural ventilation coming from flushing the house through with outdoor air to filtered ventilation coming from systems installed within the home. Because they'll give two different kind of indoor microbiomes within themselves. All right, now I want to go back into these microbes a little bit. How do do we know if a microbe is beneficial or not? That is a very interesting and not necessarily easy thing to work out. So the type of science that you use to work out if a microbe is beneficial is sort of fishing expedition. So say if you had a person with cholera, you would look at the kind of bacteria that they have in their gut when they have the disease, and then you can see if any of that bacteria are associated with the disease they have to see whether they're beneficial or non-beneficial for the, the disease. But when you're looking at things like allergies, asthma, or say mental illness, it's harder to link microbes to the, the disease or ailment in question. So you'd have to look at the microbes that a person has been exposed to throughout their life. If you take asthma, for instance, you could maybe do a sampling set on 100 homes of people with asthma versus 100 homes of people without asthma and look at the different microbes that are present. And then you might be able to start getting some links to microbes that are only seen in the homes with people without asthma and start linking them to be beneficial kind of microbes. So a lot of it's done through statistics and very large sampling pools to start giving you some insight as to which microbes could be beneficial or not. It's not a a foolproof science and it's not a definitive answer that you can come up with. It just starts giving you insight as to what kind of things are possibly protective, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not an easy question to answer. Well, that's why I asked because I, I, I realized that's got to be tough to figure out. You know, you've got what, millions of different microbes, and then um, some of them we're just learning more about now um, with the the new, you know, sequencing techniques, you know, we're, we're finding about, we're finding things, as I understand it, we didn't even know existed, so it's kind of got to be really tough to know if something we didn't know existed two years ago is beneficial or not. Um, so that, Right, plus there's so many founding factors that could change the environment you're looking at it, it makes it even more complicated to start really drawing the lines to what's beneficial and what's not but we're moving in towards being able to indicate who's beneficial 
through the research. You've done a lot of the, the background sampling, as I understand it, and if, if not, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you find really um, significant differences in the amounts and or types of microbes you found in different homes? I would love to be able to answer that question, but due to having to have time off to have my child, we're not quite there yet on the research. (laughs) So currently where we stand is I have a freezer that has over 4,000 samples in it, and we are currently extracting these samples, quantifying them on the qPCR and sequencing them. So I don't have the data back yet to be able to compare the houses. That's all going to happen over the next three or four months. So unfortunately, it's too early be able to give you the answer to that question if you invite me back in maybe six or seven months i'd probably be able to start answering that question a bit better for you i'd love to do that and and i think that will be a very interesting thing to to find out you know how how different are these these homes and then you know obviously you're also looking at um do the homes that have maybe higher numbers or or less uh variation in types also correspond to the homes where people have asthma or not. Um, how do you, right. I, I would imagine um, some of this asthma is something that is, is asthma some, can it be um, inherited essentially? So there are, there are two different types of asthma. There's the type of asthma that is really not related to having allergies. It's more of an inherited type of asthma that, it's just unfortunately something you're afflicted with. And then there's the other type of asthma, which can be closely associated with um, allergies, which will exuberate the asthma. So it depends which of the type of asthma you have. And I'm assuming you have looked at that. That's part of the study is determining what type they have. So there, there's pretty thorough surveys done for all the, the families and the children to make sure we're getting as much health information for each child as possible yeah make sure we're making the right correlation and with respect to the asthma can you do you have any idea of a like a percentage of the children in this group that you're studying what percentage of them have asthma so the the group that we are studying we are have only enlisted families that have children that have asthma and or bad allergies Okay. So, yeah, hundred percent are suffering with either asthma and/or allergies. Do you have any idea how many in the the community at large have asthma or allergies? I know you know it can be what ten percent or more in the general population. Um, do you know if the Cherokee Nation has a higher number to start with? Yeah, they they have about double the asthma prevalence of the general Oklahoma population. And. and how are you dealing with outdoor, um, you know, contaminants from the outdoor coming in? Um, I guess one thing you're doing is looking at any sources in the surrounding area. In this area, is there a lot of heavy industry or mining or anything like that? So most of the homes that we're sampling and most of the northeast Oklahoma is, is very suburban. A lot of the homes are just out in the middle of nowhere and there's like nothing around them. And it was actually quite a challenge sometimes for the field technicians to even find the home they were being sent out to sample. But we definitely are recording in the the survey data where the home is located and what the surrounding 
area is like for the home. I'm wondering if you think, it, is, it, is it possible to live or work in an environment that is just too clean? I think it definitely is, unless, of course, you're a doctor working in a hospital where you want that environment to be as sterile as possible. I think it's important in our day-to-day lives to live more in symbiosis with our indoor microbiome. We don't want to take away everything and live in a sterile environment because then the minute you step out of your environment, you'll just be hit with everything outdoors and you won't have any way for your body to to deal with it. So it's more important to make sure you have a diverse community within your house and a diverse community that is a beneficial community, which is what we're working towards, being able to answer what that community is so that you can really live in symbiosis with your indoor environment to be as healthy as possible. And I'm, I'm wondering is... is but we want to expose ourselves to these things to make sure that we can have the ability to to deal with them. When, when you're looking at these homes, do you, maybe it doesn't matter that much in, with your research, but do you figure out how long the people have been in that home and does it, you know, how quickly does a home take on the, uh, the microbiome of the inhabitants of the home? Well, homes actually take on the microbiome of the inhabitants very, very quickly. There have been studies conducted, one I can think of out of the University of Chicago that showed when a person traveled away from their home for a few days, the bacteria of their house changed very rapidly to not represent them, but as soon as they came back, it very rapidly went back to represent the people that lived in the home. So it's also important in our research to not only note the age of the house, but also the number of occupants and the square footage, so the number of occupants per square footage in the house, because that can all greatly affect the concentration and type of microbiome within the house. And, uh, you know, I wanted to um, follow up a little bit on, on that, and, and I want also I'm curious about the um, the ventilation thing. I keep coming back to that. I know that's got me kind of surprised. In the initial results, did you see any patterns with um, the amount of uh, microbes or the type of microbes that corresponded with the amount of ventilation? So I know that the ventilation rates are pretty standard in the homes we've looked at. We have about 50% above the normal ventilation rate, about 50% below, which is great for our study, but I really haven't been able to quantify the samples yet to be able to see how they link to the ventilation, which I know is is not that interesting to be able to answer that I don't know yet, but again, in the next few months, I'll have the quantification of the samples. At the moment, I just have samples that I'm slowly extracting and the quantification will happen soon. So I, I can't link the ventilation rate to the amount we're finding in the homes just yet. And I'm wondering what, what type of questions do you, do you want to be able to answer with this research? When you get all the results in, you know, what, what are you hoping to be able to answer? Well, one of the main things I'm hoping we'll be able to answer is like, what is the optimal ventilation rate? Because there's got to be like that sweet spot where it's just enough ventilation, but not too much to really help make a clean environment. And the same with cleaning. What is the the optimal spot for cleaning? We don't want our environment to be too clean because that's probably not healthy, but we also don't want our environments to be too dirty. So we're really trying to look at what's the really optimal amount of cleaning and ventilation the home requires 
to make it a healthy indoor environment. Of course, there's a whole bunch of confounding factors that will affect this because it depends where your home is located, how many occupants are in the home, what the the climate is like in the house that you live in, whether it's urban, suburban. So they're not easy questions to answer. But seeing as all the homes with sampling are in this, roughly the same kind of environment, we'll be able to start getting some optimal ventilation and rates for the homes we're looking at, hopefully, and also start delving more into exactly how much cleaning is good for a home. Okay, let's go to our roundup here. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. All right, we're going to round this up with uh, Sarah Kwan. And Cliff, I've got probably about six or eight, maybe ten questions left on my list here. So why don't I go to you first and see if there are any in particular you had an interest in. I do, and it's one, Sarah. In the you know you know in the United States, um, we can be a hundred percent Native American, or I think as little as ten percent Native American to still be considered Native American. I was wondering uh, how the, the the genetic makeup varies uh, in these houses, and and whether it you know, modified your results at all. So. It's too early to say whether it's modified our results, but the genetic makeup has varied a lot in the different homes. There are some homes where you can see that there is a very strong European influence on the genetic makeup of the residents. The Cherokee Nation very has a lot of blonde-haired, blue-eyed people within their nation. So there's a lot, a very strong European influence within that nation. But there are also some homes you went to where you could tell they, they were much more closely Native American than, than European. But it's too early to say how much that will affect it. Or, I mean, even looking at appearance of people, I don't know how closely that changes their genetic makeup because that's not my area of study. So mm-hmm. okay, all I know is you. that every house we studied definitely is inhabited by someone that has Cherokee Nation blood within them. Okay. With respect to the the schoolwork that was done and that, that you were, you were a part of, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what have we learned so far? Did anything we learned surprise you when it comes to cleaning and ventilation? And um, what what kind of lessons have we learned that we can pass along to listeners? So, although I can't draw any results onto really how often we should be cleaning in schools because we might be cleaning away beneficial microbes, that's an area yet to be discovered. It does appear that maybe if you at least want a lower concentration of bacteria and fungi, that maybe we need to reconsider the way that our schools are cleaned. Cleaning once a semester might not be enough. As I say, we have to look further into what the microbes on the desk were to be able to truly say whether we want to clean more or not. I was in a way shocked, but in a way it made a lot of sense that the microbes we are finding on desk really are just, showing that the children are just putting themselves all over the desk, which makes a lot of sense. But at first I was shocked to see that it literally is just their oral and skin bacteria just smothered all over these desks. Hmm. So in a way that was shocking, but also <laughs> made a lot of sense considering we were looking at middle schools and high schools. I, I, I mean, seem, that's what children do. <laughs> I seem to remember something about there being differences in who cleaned 
in the schools? Were there some schools where the children cleaned themselves, or am I thinking of something else? I think you're thinking of some studies that ULA has done, which were separate from studies I've done. In the schools, some schools she looked at in a separate study, there were schools where children cleaned the desks. In the schools I looked at, it was all done by the janitorial staff. So that was consistent throughout all the schools. But I know all, ULA definitely looked at some schools in a different study where children were cleaning desks themselves. And I'm, I'm wondering, when, with respect to the administrators and the teachers, etc., how, how has this research been received by them? And has it, do you think they've changed anything they do based on what you're doing so far? Well, we have yet to um, publish on it. We're hoping to publish on this work in the next few months, and then we'll be able to get back to the administrators administrators and give them feedback so as yet they are still waiting on us to get back and go and brief them on our findings we're just about wrapping up the project over the next month so i'll be able to get back to you with that answer soon hopefully and um, most of the analysis was uh pcr by dust um did you do any air sampling for my um my small study in the Connecticut schools, no, we, we just looked at sampling on the tables. For the larger study in the Cherokee Nation, they've done air sampling. So what we'll be able to have different kind of results depending on the study we're looking at for that. What, do you know what type of air sampling they're doing? They sampled uh, for PM10, and they also have done some allergen sampling within the Cherokee Nation. I see. I guess the big thing that I'm wondering about, and I see, you know, I see ads for these uh, people that are, are applying like what they call a probiotic to the indoor environment and, um, you know, spraying around some uh, microbes, usually some kind of bacteria that, you know, they consider to be a beneficial bacteria. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Is that, is that type of thing ready for the prime time? So, I mean, I haven't got deep knowledge on this, but I tend to think that, no, we're not ready to, to start changing our indoor microbiome in that way. You could probably correlate it to, should we be putting antibiotics in our water system? That would only help people with certain ailments if we did that, and it could even be detrimental to people that didn't have those same ailments. The type of microbes we want to have in our environment changes not only from location to location, but changes from occupant to occupant and also the time of life that occupant's in. So I don't think that you can make a catch or spray that would be beneficial for everyone to have. To say, go spray this in your house and you're going to have a healthy indoor environment. I mean, through my research, I'm trying to show and hoping to show that there are more elegant ways that we can adapt our indoor environment just through changing our cleaning habits and changing our ventilation habits. And I'd like to go in the future and look at work with architects to even help design healthier indoor environments through the way we build, the type of stuff we construct our buildings with. I personally don't think that spraying microbes into the building is the way to go. But, I mean, that's early. It's in its early phases at the moment. I think we can find better ways to, to change our indoor environment. So maybe like adding or uh, including some some, some uh, microbes in the building products themselves, um, things like that. Do you think maybe someday we'll be looking at that? 
I'm sure people are going to be looking at doing that. I think the fact that our indoor environment changes so quickly when you enter it that I don't even know if these sprays would have a long-term effect. We shed so much and track so much in, I think that will probably overwhelm the indoor environment far more. But <laughs> I know people are already looking at making, and there's already out antibacterial carpets and stuff. I think that would be interesting to look at whether that's going to have any big effect on the indoor microbiome. I, d I just don't know if actually putting microbes into the environment purposefully is, is going to be beneficial or is going to change much. You know, I, I appreciate that. I know it's it's I mean, people get ahead of themselves a lot of times on these things, and and you know, I'm trying to figure out if the science is there yet. I just you know, from talking to you and others, I don't see it. But I'm wondering also um, with respect to cleaning products and um, cleaning products that that they're now using that include you know some kind of microbe to you know help with the cleaning process. Have you looked at that at all? Any any familiarity with those products? I haven't looked at that. I would love to look at that in my future studies because I think the cleaning products we use can, of course, have a profound effect on our indoor environments just using high VOC cleaning products to low VOC, green cleaning products. What does that mean and is it beneficial to use them or not? So I think the type of product will have a, a great effect to the indoor environment, especially just the, the stuff that comes off the cleaning products for what you're breathing in differs so much from different product to product. So I would I would be very interested into looking in that in my future research. I want to send you the link to a show we did um, with a, a gentleman who uses a, um, it's a microbial-based cleaner for coil cleaning. Um, it's the one thing I've seen that, you know, I think, I don't know if it's ready right now for prime time or not, but it's certainly an interesting concept using this these microbes to help break down the biofilm on coils in mechanical systems. So we'll send you the link to that. Before we go, is there anything you'd like to add that we missed or anything you just want to make sure listeners are aware of on this subject? I just think this is a very interesting area of study and we're still kind of in the beginning of looking at how to create indoor healthy indoor environments, um, then there is studies coming out that will hopefully help guide the direction that research needs to take to help shape the indoor environment. I would yeah. say this is just an area for people to keep watching and see what comes out over the next decade and we'll really start hopefully making strides towards how to really create a healthy indoor environment. So I think it's a very interesting area that I think people should keep an eye on and and keep looking at. We will certainly continue discussing it here. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we go? I'm done. Thank you for joining us, sir. All right. Well, thank this you for is having me. Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you to Sarah Kwan from the Petchy Environmental Biotechnology Lab at Yale. Hey, before we go, I got one, I want to play a, a one more commercial here, and then I want to tell people about next week. Coming to the Doubletree Hilton Hotel, Tampa Airport in sunny Tampa, Florida, February 21st through the 24th. It's the second annual Indoor Environmental Science Forum. Join industry leaders and educators as they share their knowledge in supporting science with you. Speakers include Pete Consigli, John Lapiter, Dr. Ralph Moon, Harvey V. Cohen, Joe Hughes, Cliff Zlotnick, Ken Larson, and Eric Shapiro. See the latest equipment and solutions from exhibitors. Network with sponsors and industry insiders. It's two full days of in-depth coverage of water damage, assessment, protocols, mold remediation, problems, so 
solutions, and legal issues. Don't miss this important two-day industry forum beginning Tuesday the 21st with a welcome reception and wrapping up with a live IAQ radio broadcast Friday the 24th featuring Radio Joe and the Z-Man and their guest John Lapater, Richard Alexis, and industry watchdog Pete Consigli. Register now at IndoorEnvironmentalScienceForum.com. That's IndoorEnvironmentalScienceForum.com. Or call 954-562-6093 for more information. Register now for the second annual Indoor Environmental Science Forum in sunny and warm Tampa, Florida, February 21st through the 24th. All right, next week we'll be back with another live broadcast. I will be returning from the IAQA's 20th annual meeting. I'm going to do a couple interviews out there and get some good clips to bring back for people and also give you some of the highlights, uh, some things I learned over that uh, three-day event in Las Vegas, and I hope I will see many of you there. Uh, please stop and say hello if you see me there at the IAQA 20th Annual Meeting and the ASHRAE Conference there and the AHR Expo. It should be a great time. I also want to say thanks to our engineer, John. You got to have faith to the Z-Man, my co-host Cliff Zlotnick, and most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. 